Another wonderful friend from Student Life, Cindy Glover, DaleWileyShow.com. We are. Am I talking to Cindy Glover? You are. Are we on the air? We're on the air. Oh, Oh, my goodness. We're not on the air. We're on the podcast. Right. Well, you know what I (laughs) But anyway, I want to talk to you about Student Life and other things. Okay. Okay. So, first of all, what was your role in Student Life? Um, Well, uh, you know, it's funny because I started off actually down the hall at the Washington Ripple. Okay. Um, and uh, when I first arrived at Wash U, uh, right. you know, I was thinking I wanted to be an FBI agent because <laughs> okay. I was raised on Nancy Drew books. And um, I don't know if you know this about me, but I grew up all over the world. We moved a lot. No. Um, I went to uh, high school um, in London and Toronto, but, um, you know, we lived in Brazil. We lived in Venezuela. Wow. And um, as an expatriate, um, whose dad was, you know, a corporate bigwig. I grew up sort of living with the threat of terrorism and kidnapping and stuff as an expat in a way that was very, very immediate that I think most most Americans wouldn't necessarily relate to. Like um, in 1986, um, I was a sophomore at the American School in London um, in high school, and the U.S. bombed Libya. We bombed Gaddafi. Okay. And um, one of the bombs that the U.S. dropped um, missed the target. It hit like a family compound, and it killed an adopted daughter of his. Really? And um, the school that I went to, the American School in London, had uh, some of the kids were corporate. Some of the kids were um, the dippos, the diplomats kids. Sure. Um, uh-huh. and, there, and then there were foreign students who, you know, like people from different nationalities who just wanted an American education because they were headed to an American college at some point. Right. But the day after the bombing of Libya, the um, U.S. Embassy uh, came out with a, a, risk, a risk threat assessment okay. that put my school as the second most likely target for a Libyan retaliation after really? the American Embassy in London. Because wow. the planes had flown out of U.S. air bases in London, Lake Heath Air Force Base, I think. Um, and at the time, Libya didn't really have the reach to get across the pond. Um, okay. But American targets in the U.K. were legit. Right. And um, because we had killed a child in, you know, one of his family members, sure. the children of American diplomats were fair game. Okay. So I remember that ne- that first day, you know, after the um, after the bombing, we arrived at school, and there were these soldiers with heavy-duty machine guns everywhere, and we couldn't bring in our backpacks, and um, there were metal detectors, and all the diplomats' kids stayed home for like two weeks, which I thought was totally unfair, but my mom was like, no, you're going to school. <laughs> you know, you're going to school. Um, and my dad, you know, being very logical, it's probably the safest place, you know, right now. Um, but um, they uh, pulled us into an assembly and actually told us to avoid speaking with our American accents on the, the subway because most of us took the tube to school or double-decker sure. buses. And if anybody asked, we were Canadian, which, you know, which was not fine <laughs> with me because I'm a dual national. But um, because of like some of the, you know, between the Nancy Drew and the growing up with uh, a lot of political intrigue being very front and center, I came to watch you – yeah, um, I was uh, deeply interested in psychology and investigation and foreign policy. Um, 
pretty sure I wanted to be a political science major in Victor Levine's class on uh, terrorism and guerrilla warfare and international perspective nailed okay. it. I was you know, <laughs> definitely going to be a poli-sci major. Yes. But um, the Washington Ripple was the political journal. And right. um, I had been to a lot of high schools, which kind of made it hard to um, stay involved in things. I had never worked on a student newspaper in high school. So I kind of thought, oh, you know, the student newspaper, that's for kids who did journalism in high school. And I just hadn't. So um, but at the time, the student newspaper offices were in Umrath Hall, conveniently above the Rathskeller Bar, um, yeah. where beer could be had with very few questions asked. Yeah, um, exactly. <laughs> and um, there was a lot of fraternizing, you know, up and down the sort of wood-floored, grimy hallway. Um, and uh, I got pulled into student life. Um, Actually, my very, very first byline that I ever got for Student Life okay. was interviewing Laura Meckler, um, okay. who is now a renowned a journalist. Yes, she Such is. Such a big wig. Washington, <laughs> you know, White House Press Corps, um, AP, the Wall Street Journal, and now the Washington right. Post. Yes. Um, uh, huge. But um, she was <laughs> the uh, editor when um, the – ill-advised and poor taste um, student libel issue uh, was published. <laughs> yes. I was um, a lowly freshman, and, uh, you know, she was – no, I guess I was a sophomore at that point, and she was um, a senior because she was editor-in-chief. But um, it they needed an outsider to cover the story because everybody on staff at Student Life had been involved with creating <laughs> – this yeah. April Fool's edition that was unfortunately in in fairly poor Always taste in a couple of horrible taste in a couple of spots and this particular <laughs> one drew um, official condemnation from the the faculty senate committee and um, right it was a story but it was a story where the newspaper was the subject so they needed right. a non newspaper person to cover it so uh, my first byline was actually interviewing Laura about that which um. <laughs> was ever so slightly intimidating, but um, yes. from there, uh, you know, she, I guess I did a good job, and she pulled me over, and before I knew it, I was news editor, <laughs> and really? then, um, the following year, I was managing editor, um, okay. so, uh, yeah, you know, I think like so many people um, who you've interviewed, um, I found myself at Student Life, you know, I found my yes. voice, um, I found my tribe, my, my right. definitely. My crowd. Yeah, and so tell me about being a manager editor. How was that working with Dean? Um, you know, it was great. Um, the uh, it's funny because right now my daughter is in her freshman year of college. Right. And the world has changed. Um, sure and has. Uh, you know, I've talked with her. Uh, I mean, college was an incredibly difficult time for me personally. Um, and I went through a huge transformation and student life was a big part of my healing. But when I think about the experiences at the paper, um, right. you know, you've talked with other guests about the Holocaust revisionist ad, yes, um, that to me was a no brainer. I was, you know, I felt strongly that you can't fight things without bringing them out of the dark corners, blowing off the cobwebs and shining a great big flashlight on them. Um, so for me, that was easy. You know, I was an easy publish it and then devote the entire op-ed side to right. debunking it point by point. 
Um, <laughs> but if you pretend that, you know, nonsense like this doesn't exist, you're not doing anybody any favors. And we are a university. We, we discuss things. We don't sure. right. you know, shirk from the dark and ugly side of life. But um, <laughs> you also talked with Mike McKenzie um, about the diploma mill that was happening under <laughs> our noses and our um, amateur investigation uh, about that. And um, yes. we, the technological revolution that happened um, where we went from cutting waxy strips with exacto knives to right. uh, using Quark Express on Macs. And, yes. um, the, uh, but then there were so many stories that happened during our college years. Um, oh, no. 13 admitting women. Um, 13 yes. was an all-male at the time. Um, uh, oh God, it was society, I guess, secret society, whatever you want to call it. And um, I remember, um, uh, I think it was Heather, Shanna, and Bonnie uh, decided to apply as women and uh, created a big hubbub and eventually I don't know that they were admitted, but I think the year after women were admitted and it was their doing. But they um, got 13 uh, to admit women. Uh, the sociology department was abolished. Right. There was um, a cult on campus, the, the oh, St. Louis geez. Church of Christ. I spent a lot of time, um, you know, chasing that down. Right. Um, Operation Desert Storm happened, the first Gulf yeah. War and anti-war protests. Um, were happening on campus. Um, Gerald Early Wayne was was uh, treated as a bum when he or no, where was that? Was that G Gerald Early Wayne? No, Gerald Early. He was treated as a bum at the it was at the Fun Project Mall. Um, I'm not sure. Okay, well, anyway. Uh, that was a deal where, you know, he was such a great voice. I actually interviewed him when I was at WashU, and he got treated like, uh, because he was black, he got treated like a bum yeah. at Pleasant Frontenac. A very yeah. scandalous story. Um, we had uh, the presidential debates. Um, I'm sure did. Yeah, and, um, you know, so there were a lot of stories around us, Um and uh, the, um, you know, one of my first uh, big stories that I covered as um, I was at uh, the Ripple, it was before student life, right. but I did, um, I interviewed a member of the campus community who had AIDS, but was keeping it a secret because of the stigma. Oh. And wow. it was anonymous. We did not name him and I was ready to go to jail to protect my sources. <laughs> um but um, at the time, only four people in his life knew that he had gone from HIV positive to full-blown AIDS, and okay. none of them were family members. And um, that was, uh, you know, kind of a big story. And yes. then um, one of the um, – early on, uh, you know, I hadn't been news editor for very long when there was an arson with uh, one of the shuttle buses. The campus shuttle buses was destroyed, and two others were damaged. And I cut class so fast um, <laughs> to go out there and, um, you know, get the scoop and take the pictures. And, um, you know, that was the beginning of my listening to um, uh, police radio. And, right. <laughs> um, but all of these experiences, and, you know, as I mentioned, my daughter is now – 
a freshman in college and right. college is just so different right now and um I keep telling her just hang on like these <laughs> ten, there is so much more than class yes because I can't say my attendance was very good especially once <laughs> I got the journalism bug there was always an ex- a story that was a lot more exciting right. um but uh, when, you know, when I think about all of those conversations in the hallways late at night, you know, waiting for the dude to pick up the, the <laughs> proofs of the newspaper and yes. having pizza and um, the bleary-eyed, you know, late-night sessions editing, um, right. and uh, and all of that, and um, boy, I hope that's not sort of gone forever. Like I want mm-hmm. her to have these sort of off, out-of-class interactions that are so Places impossible. Exist. Yeah. You know. Um, it is rough. Um, but, uh, you know, I think about the kid I was when I showed up and the person I was when I left. Right. And um, how much happened in between and yeah. how healing for me, I think, student life was. Right. And uh, then you look at the history of it. I mean, it's been around for so many years, and so many cool people have been involved. It's oh, really- absolutely. And we always think that we had, like, the coolest chapter of this very long book. But, you know, <laughs> I'm sure yes. each generation feels that way. I'm pretty sure we did because we had a great chapter, definitely. We did. It was so a special What do you do now? Um, I am on Career 3.0. Okay. Let's hear um, <laughs> my, uh, well, I left, um, you know, when I graduated from WashU, um, right. kind of all through my years at WashU, I was at a fork in the road where I could pretty much either be an activist or a journalist. Okay. Um, and uh, I had a strong activism streak. Sure. Um, and I don't know if you remember when we uh, sued the university for access to campus police reports. I did remember that, but I'm sure you yep. did. That sounds yep. perfect. <laughs> um, you know, the um, before there was the Me Too movement, now, um, we had a similar Me Too movement in 1990 and 1991. Right. And um, at the time, it was unheard of for a sexual assault survivor to come out and, you know, speak publicly um, right. about any of that. And, um, you know, I certainly wasn't the first. Um, but in uh, November of 1990, um, one of the first columns that I wrote, I mean, it wasn't one of the first, I guess it was November, so it was a couple months in, but um, I wrote a column talking about how I had been raped my senior year of high school, and I hadn't reported it, and I wished I had, and how important it was to report it, and also, by the way, the university is hiding assaults that are happening on (laughs) front row. Yes. Um, And... uh, you know, when I came to WashU, I had so much baggage from that experience, the victimhood. And um, I think that, you know, one of my lifelong philosophies has been that activism is the cure for just about everything. You know, right. if you can make something good come out of something bad, then yes. you're halfway 
across the finish line. And yeah. um, so while I was being a journalist and very objective and, you know, apart from the story, not actually being the story, um, right. in most things, I was also, um, you know, I wrote this column, which won a national award, and then the Riverfront Times did a, a cover story with my picture on the front and my story, and then the local NBC News affiliate wanted to interview me as a rape survivor, you know, speaking right. out, and then um, the... Uh, I became the president of the campus chapter of Society of Professional Journalists, and working with the St. Louis Post-Dispatch and the National SPJ, we um, started filing um, public information requests to get access to campus police reports. Right. Which the university said, no, no, we are a private university, and we have a private police department, and therefore we don't have to show you anything. To which we said, well, you know, if you're going to turn everything over to the Clayton police, that's fine. We'll get it from them. Right. <laughs> but if your officers are going to carry badges and right. be deputized and have public authority, they have to have public accountability. Um, right. And we eventually won that one. We um, we settled before it went too far. But um, the, um, you know, the activist streak was... Um, important to me. And, uh, you know, I suppose I could have gone career-wise that way, but I was able to balance sort of journalism and activism by, you know, building a bit of a wall between the two um, and the stories that I didn't cover because I was biased. Um, And then uh, by the time I left school, I was... um, very clearly, like, in the journalist camp. Like, I'd gotten the activism out of my system to an extent. I mean, I still had um, a deep desire to understand why bad things happen and to expose injustice. But my my first year after graduating, um, I was looking for a newspaper job, and I wanted to work at a big Metro Daily. Right. Um, Big Metro dailies wanted people to have five years' experience. (laughs) (laughs) And this was the problem. Uh, But being very methodical, I couldn't take a job at like a 20,000 circulation paper until I had absolutely established beyond a shadow of a doubt that the 200,000, the the 150, the 100,000, you know, (laughs) that that they weren't options. So, um, and I had a great pitch. I would work for, for free for a week. So they could get to know me. I knew they had doubts about my inexperience and my youth. Let me work for free for you for a week and then decide if you want to interview me or not. Great and the Belleville News Democrats took me up on it, but they didn't hire me. They couldn't see somebody that young, you know, working for them. Um, so it was a year before I got my first, well, almost a year before I got my first full-time journalism job at a paper in northwest New Mexico with 20,000 circulation. <laughs> um, <laughs> but during that year, I was a freelance reporter for the St. Louis Post-Dispatch at night. I sure. was a professional babysitter for TLC for Kids Incorporated on the weekends. Very cool. And um, I worked with a temp agency, and my second temp job was at a law firm. And <laughs> I was just putting in um, – it was a it was divorced attorneys, and I was um, putting in like the cost of living, all of the receipts and the checkbooks and and right. bank statements to figure out the cost of living. 
And sure. I was there for about two weeks, and I realized how much they were paying their private investigator. They were paying him like 75 bucks an hour. Wow. And I went to the partners, and I said, you know, I can do 90% of what this guy can do, and I'll only <laughs> charge you 15 And so I became a um, private investigator for divorce attorneys. Okay. Um, and I uh, I kept kind of establishing the cost of living, but then I also found the concealed assets and um, you know, about six months before they get divorced and then start hiding the money. And, you know, I went to the hotels to find out which room it was and who stayed where and right. where the flowers were sent and the Victoria's Secret order, what size was it? <laughs> and, oh, you know, the wife is a size 12 and the Victoria's Secret clothing was a size 8. Hmm. You know? <laughs> um, and uh, so that was fun. That was fun. And then I got my first... Um, my first full-time journalism job as a police reporter in Northwest New Mexico, um, right near the Four Corners, covering part of the um, Navajo, Ute, and Apache reservations. Oh, and um, and that was awesome. So you know, career number one um, was great. I, I was a reporter for eight years. Uh, I started off as a crime reporter, mm-hmm. and I thought I would always be a crime reporter. I, I you know was very driven to understand why people do the things they do. Um, And um, it's funny, I remember my very, very first um, story uh, in Northwest New Mexico. A Native American man had been hit by a car crossing the street from one bar to another bar. And it was a stretch of road that had no streetlights, even though there had been quite a few um, deaths there. And I went out, uh, rural New Mexico, state police, and um, the, uh, I had my notepad. I was so friggin' green. It was <laughs> ridiculous how green I was. And my right. predecessor had been a man in his 40s, uh, you know, almost 50, um, you know, a good old boy. And um, I was asking, you know, about the victim and about the streetlights. And, right. and um, I asked what was in the guy's pockets. And these two cops who were just laughing their heads off threw me a pair of gloves and said, you want to know, you go, you go check. Okay. And um, this is after I had asked why his pants were down. Like, was he taking a leak or was it the force <laughs> of the, of the um, impact? And um, the uh, the gelatinous brains that were, like, <laughs> pooling okay. in the grass. But um, they were watching, and, man, I was not going to fail this test. So I put the gloves on, and I took the man's ID out of his pocket, and I noted his name. And um, <laughs> hazing me became, like, a sport. Sure. But it worked both ways, you know, like I would ask these questions about blood spatter patterns and they would bring me right behind the yellow line and show me the wall where the bar fight <laughs> happened. And, um, That's awesome. That's totally absolutely. awesome. Um, and, you know, that doesn't happen in big cities, but in, in rural New Mexico, it absolutely happened. Yes. Um, and uh, then I went um, – and during that time, you know, I was – Still, you know, I still kind of had the Nancy Drew. Uh, I really wanted to understand why people do the stuff they do. I covered a death penalty trial. Wow. um, And I interviewed all of the jurors after, you know, how they had made their decision, and then they waited an hour and a half before they came out and passed around a box of Kleenex, and everybody made sure they could live with themselves. And, you know, it was like group therapy. Um, But then afterwards, I went to the prison to interview the guy who did it now that he had nothing to lose. Right. And um, I spent about three hours in two different sessions with him trying to understand why he killed this girl. Right. Um, And uh, um, I used to go to pit day at the courthouse 
and they had all of the inmates in orange jumpsuits on one side of the room and then all of the lawyers and family members on the other side of the room. And I always sat on the orange jumpsuit side and I had (laughs) business cards and on the back I would write, you know, call me collect and I would hand them to specific inmates. You know, the guy who had been on the run for three weeks, I wanted to know where he was. Sure. So I handed him my card and um, the, uh, a couple of the, a lot of the inmates spoke Spanish. And when they discovered that I spoke Spanish and they were pretty sure that the director of the jail and a lot of the guards who were kind of racist um, did not <laughs> speak Spanish. Right. We started having these phone calls, these collect calls to the newspaper. And I don't even know how much we rang up on, you know, a call from inmates to Cindy Glover. <laughs> But I interviewed them all in Spanish about um, the black market inside the jail and how, you know, the girlfriends would throw stuff over the fence and one of the guards would look the other way if he'd take a cut and the cigarettes that got passed through light fixtures between cell block C and cell block D. And um, yeah, I got a great story. But I went from there to um, the Albuquerque Journal and um, transitioned to politics covering city hall and then state politics. Right. And um, so that was career number one. It lasted for eight years. Okay. Um, But my life kind of took a Um, U-turn. My mom, uh, a week after my 28th birthday, my mom had a massive brain hemorrhage from an aneurysm, a ruptured aneurysm. Mm -hmm. And we got a call. um, I say I got a call about 6.45 in the morning that she was um, in the hospital, in intensive care, not expected to survive the night, get down here now. She was in Boca Raton, Florida. I was in Albuquerque, and my brother was living with me at the moment, but he had been partying that night, so he had crashed where he landed at and, his skater friend's house. You know, that is an important point. We need to talk about who your brother is. <laughs> we will definitely do that. <laughs> More from Cindy and her very famous brother after a second. DaleWileyShow.com Do you love music? Do you know about the musical map of Missouri? Dallas Wayne, Chuck Berry, Dave Alvin, Robbie Folks, The Skeletons, The Ozark Mountain Daredevils, Uncle Tupelo, Wayne Carson, Nellie, Lou Whitney, Symptoms Morell, City, Jessity, St. Louis, St. Joe, Columbia, Buckle of the Bible Belt, the Studio on South Avenue in Springfield, 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 Missouri. Add the Missouri Music Podcast to your list of favorites. Lawyer, author, and Slewfoot Records label owner Dale Wiley takes you on a musical trip around Missouri while raising funds for Musical Map of Missouri, a nonprofit organization which will help ensure Missouri musicians affected by COVID-19. Visit MissouriMusicPodcast.com for more information. Tune in to the Missouri Music Podcast wherever you get your podcasts. More from Cindy Glover, DaleWileyShow.com. Um, but um, the uh, we got the call at 6.45. We were on a plane by 8.15. Right. I only ever went back to Albuquerque for 48 hours to pack up my house, uh, you know, right. and turn in my keys and get my dogs. And um, then I moved to Florida. Okay. Um, and within two weeks, I got a job at the South Florida Sun Sentinel. Okay. Um, but I became, my parents were divorced. My mom was only 51. Okay. She was in a coma on life support, and then she was on a ventilator, and then after four months of hospitalization, they released her to my care. 
Oh, wow. Um, and she was in a wheelchair, and she was very, very disabled with a feeding tube and a catheter. Right. Um, and, uh, you know, couldn't be left alone for a minute, kind of like a, a then infant level of care that she needed. Sure. Uh-huh. And I was her, you know, um, even though she had two kids, myself and my brother, right. I was the older and more responsible of the two of us. So <laughs> on all of her documents, I was the medical decision maker and the durable power of attorney, um, all of that. And even though Steve and I made every decision together, I became a caregiver to my mom at age 28. And um, I was able to hire nurses' aides to watch her during the day while I worked at the Sun Sentinel. But I had to be home by 7 o'clock at night to relieve the nurses, whereas, you know, my whole previous life I had stayed till you know, 10, 11, chasing the front page, right. pushing deadline, making one more call. I just wasn't going to be able to be the same kind of reporter that I had been before, you know, with no social life, willing to, you know, work around the clock to go out at like two o'clock in the morning to interview drug dealers and prostitutes and, right. you know, <laughs> make road trips to, to state prisons, to death row, to interview death row inmates, like all yeah. of that was done. Um, and, you know, the politicians were a different kind of criminal, but that was still um, <laughs> the, uh, you know, covering the legislative session or the political rallies or, you know, following candidates And so I switched to arts and culture, and then um, after about a year of trying to make it work, I just realized that this isn't working. Um, And uh, that was kind of the end of journalism for me. I I had one of several what I call making lemonade moments. Okay. Because there were a lot of things that sucked about, you know, being 28 and single with this, you know, parent who was in a wheelchair I always said that if she had been better off, you know, able to advocate for herself, be a cane-waving old bitty, you know, be demanding, (laughs) I could have put her in a nursing home. And if she had been worse off, where she didn't know what was going on, maybe I could have put her in a nursing home. But she was both fully aware and completely helpless and very neglectable. Wow. So uh, I was going to keep her at home. That was it. Um, And there were a lot of things that sucked about that. But... On the plus side, she owned her home and had some assets, so I didn't need to earn much. I just needed to be able to cover my own expenses without, you know, draining any of hers. Sure. But I, you know, had I took my things out of storage and, you know, we kind of merged households. Um, I moved her to a slightly less expensive house that was equally big, um, but just one town north. Um, and... Uh, I went back to school because I thought, okay, you know, I've had a couple of novels kicking around in my head and um, I got a graduate teaching assistantship and um, I started in the creative writing program and I realized very quickly that I loved teaching, but not English. Okay. By the time kids are 18, 19, 20, like that ship has sailed. (laughs) The grammar (laughs) is, you know, is what it is. And, um, every butchered, you know, construction, it, it just, the red pen, I just couldn't. It, um, But I loved teaching. And I always kind of thought journalism was the first rough draft of history. And by the time I sort of had this realization, I had interviewed 
three presidents and two Supreme Court justices and covered, you know, a bunch of campaigns. And um, I had some, you know, good firsthand insight. So um, the couple of big decisions I made, you know, dating wasn't really an option at that point. Because right. um, mom and I were a package deal. Uh, she was 51 when she had her brain hemorrhage. By the time she came home with me, she was physically in pretty good shape. Right. And expected to live, you know, at least another 15 to 20 years. And I couldn't put her in a nursing home. And I had to be home by 7. <laughs> so wow. um, I thought, okay, there are a lot of things that suck about this situation. But I could go back to school. And it's not traditional, but I could... You know, I could imagine not being married, but I couldn't imagine not being a mommy. Sure. I had, you know, saved all of my books, including the Nancy Drew books, from childhood, (laughs) which, by the way, did not age well. My daughter never took any interest. But I decided that I would um, become a single mom by choice. I conceived my daughter by artificial insemination. Um, I was able to stay home for the first year and get my um, teaching certificate. You know, take a few classes that I needed in order to um, dot all the I's and cross all the T's and become a licensed teacher for um, history, economics, and um, government. And then um, when uh, she was two and a half, I went back to work um, teaching at a private school where she got free tuition. That's cool. And, uh, you know, it was a very mom-friendly job. We drove together in the morning. We drove home together in the afternoon. We had the same holidays. Um, and, uh, and so forth. Um, and so, you know, that was sort of the beginning of making lemonade, like my very non-traditional life. Like what are sure. the deal breakers? What are the must haves in order for yeah. me to do this? And I, I, you know, it, it's the most selfish decision I ever made. And it's also the best decision I ever made. Okay. Cause I knew I was going to be bringing her into a, the world without a dad. Right, but not because of anything tragic, not because anybody left us, not because there were like bitter heart feelings. Sure. And um, you know, my my thinking was, my first choice would be to be a stable two parent family, but sure. if I can't be a stable two parent family. I'd rather be a stable one parent family. Yes. Than have some of the terrible like discord and and you know hurt and and right. back and forth and and pull push and pull that um. A lot of kids have that's, you know, pretty normal for for kids nowadays. And I thought, you know, I could do this. And in the early years, we had the nurse's aid. So if the baby was sleeping and I had to get groceries, grandma and the nurse could hold down the fort. Okay. And um, we had strong neighbors and so forth. And um, so um, that was, you know, how I shifted both from – you know, being single to being a mom, a single right. mom by choice, and being a journalist to being a teacher, which was a job I had for 10 years. Okay. Um, teaching uh, mostly juniors and seniors and um, U.S. government, U.S. history and economics. That sounds fun. <laughs> you know, it's fun, although after 10 years I was starting to get a little cranky. <laughs> <Okay>. <laughs> and you've mentioned um, my brother. My brother... Uh, I, for you know anybody listening who doesn't know is Steve-O from Jackass. Yeah, he sure is. And um, I I crushed dreams for ten years. Kids would get so excited. You know, the first week of school there'd be this buzz because you know most of the kids who've been around a while knew, but there were always some students who weren't aware. And they're like, 
dude, we've got Glover for history. This is going to be so rad. You know, and then a week later, they'd be like, dude, you're not that much like your brother. You You thought we were going to swallow goldfish all year? Snorkelers, like the firecrackers? They're not being, they're not being taught, they're taped together. Or, or, well, they're pierced together. Yeah, absolutely. Um, (laughs) They, uh, Although I did redeem myself because Steve came um, the first year I was teaching, um, I brought him to, uh, he happened to be visiting during homecoming week and I brought him to the football game Right. and the cheerleaders loved my daughter who had her own little, you know, blue and white stallions, cheerleading dress and pom-poms and during downtime, she would go out on the field and and cheer with them. And um, my brother, uh, that it only happened once. But, you know, teenage girls, especially like seniors who are, you know, 18 or whatever, look one way when they're wearing their school uniforms. Right. And they look a little different sometimes in the evening, you know, when it's, they're at the football game. And um, sure. my brother was doing a little bit of whiplash, like, and he he said to me, Sims, <laughs> some of your students are hot. I smacked him so hard <laughs> and said, my students are not hot. My students are children. <laughs> and you are not going to be a creepy old man. And right. um, that was the beginning of the new rule that um, women, for everybody else, 18 might be the age of consent. But Steve was not allowed to appreciate the female form until it reached the age of 19. <laughs> and um, if he ever looked at any of my students in anything less than a big brotherly way, I would personally kick his ass, which I was still completely capable of doing. Um, (laughs) But um, he was just appreciating them. He wasn't leering or being, you know, super creepy or anything. But that was the one and only time he ever appreciated the female form um, in in a school setting. And um, we set him straight. But we used to have this weird thing where um, the – after Christmas or winter break, I guess we call it to be more politically correct, after winter break, we would come back on a Thursday and okay. have two days of school. And then on and the public schools didn't start until Monday. Right. And the um the students hated the injustice of this. Many of them had, you know, public school friends or kids on scholarship, you know, the the people they grew up with didn't start until Monday. And so there was sort of an epidemic of juniors and seniors not showing up for the Thursday and Friday. Attendance, very, very low. But there was also an edict from the administration that we had to teach meaningful things those first two days. They couldn't be (laughs) blow-off things, even though every teacher knew we would have to reteach from scratch on Monday. And um, so a couple of – two years in a row – um, my brother happened to be visiting for you know Christmas and New Year's, and sure. um, I brought him to school as a guest lecturer to talk about the economics of Hollywood okay. and about how he's done very, very well for himself, pretending yeah. to be stupid, but he's actually very <laughs> smart. He got a 1350 on his SATs. He um, right. got into and then dropped out of the University of Miami, which was not that easy okay. to do. And um, he had a uh, a big enough vocabulary to be able to read contracts and understand what you know, signing away the rights in all media in perpetuity meant. Sure. And yes. that that wasn't something he was comfortable doing. Right. But um, so he would come in and he would talk about how um, points and residuals work and, um, you know, back end uh, um, versus front end and, and how the uh, the first season of Jackass 
he got famous, but for the entire season, he made $7,500. Um, oh. You know, most of the stunts were, if it was um, comedic, but not life-threatening, he got $250. <laughs> If it was high risk, it was 500 but right. his ego required him, you know, he wasn't going to claim anything was risky. So, um, he uh, he made nothing, and he was couch a couch-surfing bum who couldn't afford a McDonald's, but people were recognizing him and asking for his autograph. Right. And, you know, one of the messages was stay in school, and one of the messages was also um, if you want to become a millionaire in Hollywood, like, it's a lot better to walk in front of a city bus. <laughs> you know, your odds are better um, than the fastest way to make a million bucks in Hollywood is to get hit by a city bus. Sure. Um, but uh, and so I would bring him in, and at the end of these guest lectures, he would take pictures with all of the kids. Right. You know, a selfie with every kid in the class. Right. And then Monday, these little smart aleck, you know, kids who thought they were so smart for skipping the first two days of school <laughs> that were so stupid, and all of those suckers went. Right. Everybody else had these pictures of themselves with Steve. <laughs> it uh, there was a little bit of poetic justice there. Well, um, that's fun, and you know, one of the things that I think is so cool is I love the pictures of Steve with her son. And so, talk about that. Um, well, you know, the uh, I, I had my daughter, and um, right. the first the first couple of years of teaching were really hard. I, you know, hadn't done economics in a while. Um, right. I was uh, like a chapter ahead of the kids right. most of the time, <laughs> writing every quiz, yeah. every test, every project, every, you know, all of the notes, every PowerPoint from scratch. I later kind of figured out that a lot of this stuff is pre-made, like you can download it, but I did it all, you know, myself. So the first right. few years were really hard. and then, But then I hit my stride. I was recycling. I was just, wow. you know, tweaking things a little bit every year, but I had a playbook. Yes. And I thought, wow, I can do this. And my daughter, <laughs> who was um, four and a half or five at the time, was begging for a sibling. She right. wanted a sibling. And so it was about um, it, Thanksgiving was coming up, and um, my brother was coming into town, and my dad was close. Um, my mom had passed away unexpectedly when my daughter was not quite two. Oh, um, wow. She got an infection and it all sort of went downhill very, very fast, um, which we, you know, I had sort of planned this whole life taking care of her, right. you know, until I was in my 60s. Um, but uh, the, um, anyway, uh, I was now sort of on my own, but doing well as a single mom and a teacher. Right. And um, so we were having, a, the, the, you know, we got together at Thanksgiving as a family, and I said, guys, I'm having crazy thoughts. Talk me out of it. <laughs> I'm thinking of doing it again. You know, when mom passed away, I had inherited a little bit of money. I could, you know, take some time with, the, you know, baby number two and right. and stuff like that. And um, I fully, I mean, my dad is a dollars and cents businessman. You know, uh -huh. my brother is not a big fan of kids. I thought everybody would say, are you crazy? But they're like, <laughs> no, this is great, grandbaby. Wow. My stepmom was super thrilled. Um, and, and so, uh, the donor I had used with Cass was no longer available, but I found three very similar and we labeled them A, B, and C. And at Christmas we voted <laughs> on, which, on which sample to use. Um, and, uh, number C was the winner across the board. Okay. And, um, very first try I got pregnant. 
Um, and uh, when, you know, at this point I was 35. Right. Um, you know, a little older, but not, you know, crazy. Sure. Um, I had declined all of the um, prenatal testing because there was right. nothing they could tell me sure. that would make me change my mind. And I right. knew there was risk of, you know, triggering a miscarriage. Sure. So when my son was born with Down syndrome, um, I didn't find out until after, you know, until he was six hours old. Right. Um, but I was actually really glad because I was, a, yeah. I mean, besides being a bit of a cranky teacher, I was a very happy pregnant person. Okay. Um, <laughs> and I think that if, um, if I had known, I would have worried so much. Right. And Dylan, for anybody who knows him, you know, we... Um, we talk about how joy is his superpower. He um, yes. he just has, he will just burst out giggling for no reason whatsoever. Uh-huh. Um, and there's, uh, whereas most of my family members are creatives with a strong tendency to depression. Right. Bill has this, you know, endless supply of serotonin, I guess. Right. Um, <laughs> he's, uh, you know, extra endowed. Um, and I do feel like, you know, the fact that I, I wasn't worried at all. Sure. I mean, I was a little shocked when they told me he was going to be a boy. I was like, really? Are you sure? I don't know anything about boys. <laughs> you know, what? Okay. I, I, it never occurred to me I would have a, a boy. I, I, for some reason, <laughs> thought that, you know, having had one girl, I would have another. And, right. You know, girl power household and stuff like that. Um, right. But I, um, so Dylan had Down syndrome. And then um, when he, uh, or he has Down syndrome, I should say, but we learned that he had Down syndrome when he was six hours old. And it was funny because every time they took him, uh, like, back to the nursery, right? my brain would go to the future and I would worry about, you know, everything and what kind of a life he was going to have and right. what kind of a life Cassie would have. And then when they brought him back and he was in my arms, none of that mattered because it was all about, you know, okay, he need, you know, he's going to eat, sleep, and poop. That's what babies do. And we'll take it, you know, whatever it is. When he was in front of me and I was dealing with the reality of him, it was fine. When he was, you know, in the nursery, I was trying to wrap my head around like Down syndrome and I don't know very much about it. And, you know, I remembered life goes on from the 1980s. uh, (laughs) Right. uh, But um, anyway, uh, so, yeah, Dylan has. Down syndrome, and then when he was um, three or four, he wasn't doing the things that our other young friends with Down syndrome are doing, our, our you know higher functioning friends, and we got the additional diagnosis of autism, which oh, wow. people may not know, it happens in about 10% of Down syndrome, uh, it's about 10% of people with Down syndrome also have autism, okay. um, which meant that we um, don't fit neatly in either camp, you know, we... Um, we kind of drifted from our wonderful local Down syndrome organization that has a buddy walk every year and all kinds of social groups because we were just having this completely different experience. Their kids were talking and going to regular school and Dylan is nonverbal and he eats baby food and drinks Pediasure and loves Elmo and um, is in diapers. Um, He just turned 13 he um, is the size of a six or seven year old. Okay. Um, happiest little guy you'd ever meet. Like, don't feel sorry for him because he's right. having a blast. Yeah. Um, and even though, and for a, a kid who can't talk, he sure does get his way. Like, he knows. <laughs> um, 
he he wants something to drink. He goes to the pantry. He gets it. He brings it. He hands it to me. You know, the iPad isn't working. He comes over. He he takes my hand. He pushes the buttons. Um, So uh, he's very, you know, self-reliant and and so forth. But, um, you know, developmentally, he's about two or three. He's my my little big boy. And um, the... uh, the men in my family, you know, we're a, a small family, but we're very close. My dad and my brother, they don't do babies and diapers and stuff. Like, they have <laughs> both really struggled. Right. Like, my dad want, wanted very little to do with Cassie um, before she was potty trained and verbal. And then <laughs> once she was capable of going on adventures, um, they took off like a house on fire. Um, and, uh, you know, went to the zoo and went to see alligators and, you know, airboat rides. And, um, when she was 12, she flew to London because my dad, um, was a snowbird who spent part of the year in London and part of the year in Florida. Wow. She flew to London by herself and spent two weeks with the grandparents. And, um, so, uh, you know, and, and, um, she flew out to LA to hang out with Steve and meet Kat Von D and to have adventures on a film set and, um, So, you know, they have always had a very easy time relating to my daughter. Sure. Dylan doesn't talk. And he, you know, there's this diaper issue. And um, I made both of them change diapers early on. And my brother, you know, filmed it as a stunt. (laughs) (laughs) But um, they have made up, you know, they've tried to sort of make up for it in different ways. Like my dad is very happy to go on nature walks where Dylan can sort of run and um, my brother um, has, uh, you know, used to come to uh, help sort of boost the um, buddy walk to raise money for Down syndrome. Okay. And he was a celebrity contestant on Minute to Win It, um, okay. the, the game show hosted by Guy Fieri. Um, he and Ryan Dunn were a team. <laughs> and Steve's chosen charity was the National Down Syndrome Congress. And NBC actually flew the kids and me out to LA and they filmed Steve with Dylan, Oh wow. uh, you know, backstage and um, it didn't go well. Like Steve thought he was going to absolutely crush it. And I think he ended up, um, they got 25,000 each for their charities, which, you know, not peanuts, but he was really oh, hoping oh. to get a million um, <laughs> with his circus training and, and so forth. Um, but uh, Steve has, um, you know, posted during um, Down Syndrome Awareness Month um, pictures of Dylan, and um, he uh, has advocated. Um, he works with. Uh, there's a group in Los Angeles for um, actors with um, Down Syndrome and other like special needs, and sure. Steve um, is connected with them, and so um, he has. You know always been very strong in um, helping to fight for Dill. And and he can be playful, you know, right. he's silly Uncle Steve who makes Dill giggle. But, <laughs> um, you know, if, if Dylan ever gets, you know, fully potty trained and um, a little bit more communicative, I think they'll, um, they'll have an easier time. Oh, really? Because I just love looking at him. And it's just so fun to watch them be a part of his life. I love that. Yeah. Yeah. And so what's Career 3.0? Tell us about that. Well, Career 3.0, you know, after 10 years of teaching, I wasn't making enough money and I was getting cranky. 
Um, and uh, I kind of missed um, journalism, uh, you know, research and projects and so forth. And um, I left teaching and um, I started out doing marketing for um, a financial newsletter. Okay. And then um, I ended up with a marketing agency that did a lot of content marketing um, based on polling and, um, you know, conducting surveys and then pitching the results to media. Sure. Uh-huh. And um, so uh, I worked with them for about a year. Okay. Um, and then when a big client left, you know, last hired, first fired, um, there were layoffs. <laughs> And right. I started my own agency um, really? doing the same thing and realized I really hate finding, like, you know, <laughs> I really hate, like, the rain-making part of it. Like, the, right. the, the nerdy, both the creative design elements, the writing, and the research, I right. love. The selling services to clients, <laughs> I did not love. And right. so um, I uh, had started subcontracting for an agency, and she, uh, the owner persuaded me to come on full-time. And so I've been working remotely. Um, it's an all-remote agency. And I do um, really like a, a combination of right brain and left brain stuff. Okay. Um, because on the one hand, you know, I've learned a lot of data analysis and um, using Tableau and, and um, the uh, – I can crunch the numbers and cross-tabulate and um, come up with, you know, pull stories out of the data. Right. Um, but then there's also a lot of the creative side where I'm working with graphic designers to make really attractive assets and illustrate um, and then also write the article and then, you know, kind of sketch out the pitch for the different media organizations. Wow. So. Wow. Um, I get to do sort of the nerdy numbers stuff and the artsy fartsy stuff. Right, that's super cool. Um, yeah, it's a lot of fun, and I work with um, some amazing people. Um, you know, we've got designers in Peru and Indonesia, and writers in um, DC and Texas and Seattle, wow. and you know, it, it's. Um, and uh, I've learned an awful lot more about uh, digital marketing and search engine optimization and. Um, wow. Things that I, you know, you pick up along the way. Stuff um, we couldn't have even heard of at college. Exactly. Yeah, it's stuff that didn't <laughs> exist. But so, um, you know, I kind of sold my soul a little bit. If you had told me as a journalist I was going to end up working in marketing, you know, yes. that was considered going to the dark side. Right. But um, the dark side has a lot better working hours. <laughs> you know? Better um, shows, better benefits, definitely. Absolutely. And I still kind of get to be curious <laughs> for a living, you know. And um, so I want to know, my last question is, what were the novels you were to write? You know, it's funny that you should mention that. Um, okay. I started off, and um, it was really inspired by that death penalty case. Okay. That, um, you know, one of the insights that I had as a crime reporter um, was that the bad guys weren't all that bad. Right. You know, there were a lot of, you know, drug dealers and pimps and, oh, yeah. and people who'd committed terrible violent crimes who right. were incredibly loyal and devoted to their mothers. Engaging, yes. And I had this code of ethics within their own social, you know, within their own communities that sort of didn't apply to 
whatever they were doing outside of that. But um, and some of the DAs and the prosecutors, you know, if you ask me who I would rather have a beer with. Right. And I don't drink, but, you know, nine times out of ten, it would be the dudes in the orange jumpsuits rather right. than the people exactly. on the other side of the of the room. Right. And um, particularly, like, some of the corruption that was ultimately prosecuted and, um, you know, there was a big cleaning house of the, um, the county jail, um, not entirely because of my stories about the black market in the jail, but, you know, there were other things brewing although I like to think that I was a part of it, but there was so much racism and corruption and so forth. So I had this novel, Psychological Murder Mystery, where the the good guys aren't that good, the bad guys aren't that bad, and um, the uh, reporter, you know, makes a mistake and then has to frame somebody to, to set the justice system back on its rights you know oh she um gosh. having having accidentally eliminated evidence she now has <laughs> to frame somebody for something they didn't do but wow. they did do something else um that sounds good i want to read it <laughs> yeah i got about 160 pages into it and then i became oh, a mom wow. and well I, I you know i wrote i wrote about 100 pages and the first 60 were crap and so i threw right. them out and i kept 40 and then i wrote more <laughs> but then um but then I became a mommy and I got really mushy and I couldn't do, my brain didn't want to go to these really dark places anymore. Sure. Right. Um, and uh, I kind of put it aside. And then I, I started sketching out a couple of kids books about a, um, you know, a very, very smart uh, sister who um, doesn't have people skills and a little brother with Down syndrome who may not have book smarts, but he can read people and yeah. has like some common sense that she lacks right. <laughs> and together, you know, them solving things. Um, unlike yourself, I have not, um, I have written one book that uh, was actually about my brother's dog, you know, Wendy finds a home um, oh. to raise money for um, <laughs> his animal activism. But um, right. these are all uh, sort of future projects for, um, a quieter time in my life because <laughs> I'm not only I not only have my two biological kids, but I'm also now a foster parent. Okay. And um, I have uh, two wonderful young women. Uh, one who lived with me for two years, who is now sort of launched. She's in North Carolina. Um, right. One who lived me, with me for one year, who is now doing really well. Um, and about to graduate from high school and uh, turn 18 and live independently. Um, and uh, I have a 16-year-old foster son. Wow. But uh, the, um, you know, looking out for kids has been, um, it's a common theme. I mean, it, I went back when I first moved to Albuquerque and I was working for the Albuquerque Journal. I became a big sister in the Big Brothers Big Sisters program. Yeah. And uh, 22 years later, my little sister and I are still really close. She's actually really? in Helsinki in Finland um, oh, and married. Um, but, uh, you know, and I did a fair bit of unofficial mentoring over the years and was a, <laughs> a volunteer guardian ad litem um, oh, in St. Cool. Louis. Right. Um, and, uh, but. Yeah, um, between uh, working from home and raising now homeschooling Dylan because of uh, coronavirus, sure, um, and um, 
you know, helping my teens navigate the world um, and cast deal with a really topsy-turvy freshman year. Um, Where is she? What school is she at? You know, she had always planned to go to the UK, um, and she applied to and got into a whole bunch of schools across the pond, including um, St. Andrews and the University of Edinburgh and King's College London and all of that. And she um, also was got into McGill and NYU, but when uh, coronavirus hit, it just didn't make sense. And um, she had a full ride to the University of Florida. Um, and so we uh, decided, you know what, stay close. You can come home. I mean, it is a four-hour drive, but, sure. um, you know, come home whenever you want. And, um, well, she's in Scotland, that's for sure. The uh, we're figuring junior year abroad, and she wants to get um, a graduate. You know, she wants to go to grad school, so sure. um, maybe that will be someplace exotic. But um, <laughs> you know, I've, I have tried to pass on the making lemonade philosophy. Yes, and yes, uh, there are a lot of things to suck about this, but hey, no debt and um, <laughs> you know, full ride, and um, it's the best school in Florida, and uh, I think the number six for public universities and in the country and so she um is there but uh you know struggling a little bit with meeting people and getting involved when there's so many things that cannot be done right now (laughs) definitely and so what what is the curve through bottle what is the address for that the website or whatever Oh, the website? Yes, for your marketing stuff. Oh, yes, northstarinbound.com. Okay. Northstarinbound.com is the agency that I work for. And um, I have one of the best bosses in the world. um, And uh, this past year, we have really um, focused on diversity and inclusion within our industry as uh-huh. kind of a, a pet cause. So in addition to all of the client work that we do, um, she has uh, recently um, had a couple of studies published on the Moz blog, for anybody who's in digital marketing, Moz is a pretty big deal, about the gender gap in SEO and digital marketing and also the experiences of um, BIPOC and LGBT, LGBTQ plus um, SEOs in the industry and, um, you know, wow. some of the discrimination. And um, so, yeah. That sounds like a lot of information. And <laughs> I'm so happy to have on the podcast. Definitely have enjoyed it very much. Well, gosh, I hope I didn't bore your your, no. your listeners to tears. But um, <laughs> I, I do have kind of a lot of stories. So <laughs> That was great. Thank you so much for coming on. Oh, anytime. Really happy to catch up, Dale. And uh, right. at this some point, soon we need to have a call where I can grill you. Definitely. Sounds good. All right. Talk to you later. All righty. Take care. DaleWileyShow.com.